Welcome to the June edition of BBIOB Cast. I'm Francesca Broom, your host and Knowledge Exchange Manager for BBRO. May was an exceptionally busy month for the BBRO staff with the start of the AFID survey and our monitoring sites, as we previously discussed in last month's BeatCast. It also saw the staff hit the road with the first of our demo farms for the year. We had four events covering aphids and virus to crop nutrition and carbon capture. So for this month's BeatCast, we have something a little different for you as we eavesdrop on the presentations, commencing with Mark giving an overview of the latest news regarding aphid control. Anyway, good afternoon everyone, great to see you. We are now in a situation where the aphids is developing quite quickly, so it's good that we are together. But if you cast your mind back eight, nine weeks ago, uh, the first bulletin that we issued, and hopefully you saw that, uh, it's always traditionally known as our virus yellows bulletin. That takes into consideration all the information that Rothamsted needs to be able to produce that for BBRO. Uh, and that indicated, sadly, that 67% of the crop potentially could go yellow at the end of August this year without any control strategies. Uh, and Rothamsted, not only did they indicate the potential virus yellows threat and risk, they are also able to provide us with the first flight data as well. Uh, and they predicted for this year the first flight of Mises Persicke at the Broomsbarn suction trap, which is the key one for all the work we're doing, to be the 24th of April. But it's a testament to the science, I think, and having that long-term data that enables us to predict when those aphids are going to start coming into a crop. Because then, clearly, that's an early scenario. Uh, and what we've seen, and I'll tell you a little bit about what we're finding, aphids have been building ever since, even despite the weather we've been having. But we are now monitoring winged aphids coming into uh, the crop uh, as we speak. Uh, we have 12 uh, yellow water pan sites. That's looking at winged aphids coming in. We are then emptying those twice a week on a Monday and Thursday, and they come into the lab into Norwich, uh, and then we process those. Uh, and in addition to those 12 sites, we then have another 34 sites plus these 12 where we're actually counting the number of green wingless aphids on the crop because really that is critical for any decision making they're making with uh, insecticides going forward. What's quite interesting from the monitoring work we're doing at all those sites, oilseed rape is playing quite a role. So if you've got oilseed rape near your farm or near your beet, that may actually mean you're seeing more aphids coming in. Actually, you probably aren't carrying the virus because the viruses that go into rape don't go into beet, but they could be having weed species that actually do hold some of those. But it, it does mean we need to be very uh, conscious of that, particularly if you haven't used uh, a seed treatment. We're also testing those aphids for virus. Everything we've caught at the moment up until the end of April has been tested now for, for virus. We have seen of the, the aphids we've tested, we're at 3% carrying virus. That sounds low, and it is low, but the long-term average is 1%. So we're just keeping an eye on whether or not there's some significance in that. Uh, it may be a, a, a flash in the pan, and it may just be one of those things, but we need the rest of the data as we go forward to get an indication, because low levels of virus in the aphids, even if it's just a slight uptick, and I always think potentially that could happen post-neonicotinoids, could lead to some great pressure going into the crop with regard to the need for use of aphicides and then ultimately more virus uh, in the crop later in the summer. So please 
use the the maps that we have on the BBI website. Many of you are probably already quite familiar with this information. This has all 46 sites. As I said, this information gets updated as that information comes in. We, uh, as I said, we do the counts on the Thursday uh, and a Monday uh, and then gets loaded on there. Gray means we're still waiting for data. Green means we're not finding any green wingless aphids. Amber is we're finding green wingless, but it's below the spray threshold. And really that's above the spray threshold at that site. So of the 46, I think we've got eight sites up until last night that had aphid activity. Now, when it comes to trying to manage aphids, if you haven't used seed treatments, those seed treatments should give you 10 weeks protection from drilling. We know that from the information and all the monitoring work we did in 2022. It really did reinforce also then all the trial work that we had done previously back in the, the mid sort of teens. And we know it will you know, give you that uh, confidence that will keep those winged and wingless aphids out of your crop. But once you get to around about week eight, it's probably worth starting to inspect those crops. Although we are very mindful this year, we have got growth stages from where we've been this morning, six, eight true leaves, right to potentially crop being drilled today, either redrill or one or two other things. So you've got probably a whole host of different growth stages on farm. And it's really important that you, you check appropriately and, and take on board the local situation because that gives you a guide but you need to be making sure your agronomists need to be checking your crop to make sure you get those products on. In 2023, we, we still have two fully approved active ingredients that we can apply for aphid control. We've got uh, flanicamid, which you can buy either as uh, tapiki from Belgium Certis, or you can also buy it as a finto from Syngenta, but you'll clearly get it through distribution. The one thing I will emphasize and stress is you can only apply it once. You can use it either or, but you can't use both because you're only allowed to add one to the crop. And then the other product you've got is Insist or Acetamaprid. It's a folia neonicotinoid. Uh, uh, and that is more of an insecticide rather than an aphicide. You've been used to using it for several years now uh, and it will give you quick knockdown activity. But if you've got and have used a seed treatment, or you've got seed uh, in the field and you've mixed a bit of untreated to raise uh, the, uh, the seed rate when you put it in drill, you have to treat it as a neonic treated crop. And you have to go with either Topeka or Afinto in that first spray position. The reason why is you cannot put a neonic spray on a neonic seed treatment for resistance management purposes. That's different though, if you do not have any seed treatment on farm or in your fields. You can use either product in position one. So flinicamid or uh, acetamaprid at threshold monitoring from this point onwards. If you need to go again, uh, if you continue to monitor uh, and hopefully we gain protection for up to two weeks of these products, but I am mindful of the fact that some of these crops are very small. And one thing we did learn from 2020, when there was a lot of aphid activity coming in earlier, I know it was an earlier season, but plant sizes were similar. You are probably spraying a target where probably 80, 85% of it's hitting the ground rather than the plant. And when that happens, the efficacy is compromised right down to potentially four or five days. So you can burn through insecticides quite quickly, sadly. Just something to bear in mind. But whatever you do in position one, you use the alternative in position two. And then in uh, position three, 
you have a further option for the use of Mavento or Spirotetramat. I expect the aphid peak probably in the, probably the second week in June, just knowing where we are with crops and everything else. Uh, probably about a week later than we were last year and just seeing what we're seeing in the crops and our own intel and the information that's coming through. So that does give you that third spray option in a non-neonic seed-treated crop, but it has to go in position three because you have to use fully approved products first before you can go to an emergency authorization product. Going forward in future years, there's an interesting pipeline of several quite interesting and very effective aphicides that we'll have available. So I can see more options going forward. Uh, but as we stand for 2023, that's the situation. The big dilemma and the big debate that we continue to have, and we've been having it today and we'll probably be having it next week and we had it last week, is what to use first in your non-neonic treated fields. Because the one thing we're also keeping a very close eye on are the beneficials. I, I would say up until about the last two or three days, beneficial numbers have been pretty low. There have been one or two ladybirds. It will be very different between field to field and local factors. Uh, but when we were at Bracebridge uh, this morning, there were some quite, quite decent numbers of ladybirds in the field. Uh, one or two agronomists have been saying they've been finding some reasonable numbers of parasitic wasps. Because acetamiprid actually is an insecticide rather than a specific aphicide and potentially has a greater impact on those insects. You need to check and make that decision because you're probably going to have to need both products just reflecting on the season. So you're just going to have to think about your own personal scenario and where you put those two products in that rotation. Those of you listening intently will have heard the rumble of the F-35 jets that kept us entertained at the Fincham site, which is just outside RAF Marham. At one point, we did wonder if the BBRO start end was being used for target practice, but this added to the fun and certainly didn't stop the proceedings. And we now rejoin the meeting to hear what Dr Simon Bowen yeah, had to say. Yeah, we just want to talk a little bit about the crop and the soil and some nutrition things you might be thinking of in the next few weeks. Of course, the last few seasons, we've, we've, we've always been talking about dry springs, haven't we, and all the hassles and problems that brings. So it was always inevitable, wasn't it? It was going to happen and we were going to get one. Wet, with a wet spring, I think, comes advantages. And hopefully, if you look up the drills in this field, we've got fantastic plant population, haven't we? Which is really good. So not so that's all down to the weather. I'm sure Steve's had something to do that as well. But actually, compared to the last few years, when we've seen some, we've seen some patchy emergence, you know, and this is tricky soil, isn't it? It's not the easiest soil, but I'm really pleased with the plant population we've got here. It varies across the field because where the chalk comes to the surface can be very, very cold. So you will see some variation. But no, it's a great plant population. And I think hopefully most of you agree with me, you've got some good plant populations this year. And you know that is the backbone of, of good yield. Now, I think for the earlier drill crops, which we had, went into nice seed beds and then had a raid on it, clearly the, the continued rain and some very heavy showers in some area obviously meant we had some very wet seed beds and obviously some compromises had to be made when we came to basically cultivating and getting crops in. And I think some of those crops which have gone in slightly later then sat through, particularly through some of the torrential downpours. That, I think that may have caused a, a few problems. I always think it's a really good test of a soil when you get a lot of rain, a lot of heavy downpour, how well it deals with it. Uh, I think it really is a good indicator of its resilience and, and its soil health. And I have to say, I have the luxury of driving around a whole range of different soil types and different areas. And I have to say, there are some fields and soil types which don't seem to have dealt, dealt with it better than others. 
uh, and some of the problems you often see associated. Obviously, we've had a bit of cra bit crusting and capping. Hopefully, most of that has come post-emergence. It hasn't really interfered with uh, uh, germination too much, although there will be exceptions to the rule. The one I'm, I'm a bit concerned about is actually some of this land slumping a little bit. Uh, obviously, with a lot of rain, a lot of movement of water through it, it can basically mobilise all the sm smaller, the finer particles in the soil, the silts and the clays, and they flood through, flood up the, the uh, pores, and basically we lose air, and the, and the land just goes very, very hard. I have to say, I have, have a looked at a few crops and put a spade in, and you think, OK, there's got a bit of work to do. And what I would say to you is, if you've got fields which look a bit slow, and I'm sure many of you have put the spade and just do a bit of an assessment of what that quality looks like. It's not a lot you can do about it now, uh, but obviously it's probably something you maybe think about, say, right, I something need to, need to address this. I think it's the exception to the rule, and I think one of the reasons the crops are slow, not, they're not all sitting in wet, saturated, anaerobic soils, it's been very cold. We mustn't lose sight of that. And there's been some wind and they're a bit beat up and they've really, really struggled a little bit. So I think with this kind of weather we're getting now, uh, I think it's ideal and I think, you know, uh, you will see quite a bit of movement. In these kind of conditions, I would expect to see a pair of new leaves ev certainly every week, if not quicker, particularly if it gets warmer. Uh, the, the, you know, the, the sugar beet plant has that ability to do that. At the moment, I mean, when a plant comes through at this stage, the, these cotyledons, two of them, sorry, they are, the, these are really important. We call them the seed leaves or the cotyledons because they're basically present in the seed uh, and they're actually jam-packed in nutrients. So when a, when a plant emerges, these are the, initially the main source of uh, the energy to drive the root, initial root growth and the shoot growth. They, they estimate they can last and drive plant growth for about 10, 20 days, depending on temperature. Uh, but obviously, of course, they green up, of course, and become the first photosynthetic leaves as well. And then they drive the production. Uh, but certainly when a plant gets to first set, second set, or that one's been pruned off by a pigeon, they are beginning, those, those, those cotyledons are beginning to run out of steam and the plant is beginning to establish its own independent life, obviously. And that, for that reason, it's important to get, we need to get those leaves out as, as big and quickly as possible. Let's think about nutrition. So two key nutrients at this point, nitrogen and phosphate, particularly nitrogen, absolutely key to leaf expansion. Uh, crops at this stage would be beginning, when they get into certainly a bit more rapid, they, they begin to use maybe half to one kilo of nitrogen a day. They, they gobble nitrogen up. Probably not quite there with a plant this size, but they will be getting there. And of course, if you look at it, it's, all, it's rooting in the top 15 centimetres of soil. We've had quite a few questions about, do you think we've lost some nitrogen this year, uh, particularly on some of the lighter land? And I think possibly the arches we possibly have, depending when it was put on. Some of the early applied stuff might have just kind of washed out of the rooting zone. So you might, it might be sitting down there. Obviously, if you've uh, top-dressed, uh, that will help because that will be washed down as well. If you haven't top-dressed and still planning to, I would encourage you to get it on. And that's one of my take-homes. Get your nitrogen on now and make sure it doesn't start sitting on dry surfaces and doesn't go anywhere because it will be needed. It will be needed. Probably worth saying, Stephen, about this. So this, this, this field had cover crop and poultry manure, which is one of the reasons I think it's dealing with the conditions quite well. Because if you look at the structure for a sandy clay loam, which could have really gone compacted and hard, actually the aggregate, aggregate structure, it's wet, but it's actually, as it dries, actually you're holding onto your structure, which I think is really good, which is why I'm confident these crops will pick up now with, with the heat. So encouraging, so that's important. But uh, I think if you've got some crops which are looking a bit poor, we might have lost some, you may want to consider, you know, making nitrogen. Now, it all depends where you are and how much you've put on. I think here we didn't go to Edmax straight away, so we've got a bit of headroom, haven't we, to put some extra on. Unfortunately, if you put all 120 on, you have to be a bit careful, don't you? And I can't advise you what to, what to do there. 
But I think now we're at the stage when we're now thinking forward to folio nutrition. Now, obviously, you, you've just got to wait a little bit. Have a bit of patience. Don't panic. These crops will move. But once they get to fourth or sixth leaf stage and the area of the leaves are a bit bigger, certainly maybe about 20% cover, I would urge you to get on with manganese, your manganese and magnesium. I think most of you would do that anyhow, yeah? And, of course, those products probably have a bit of sulphur in them as well, which I think is good because that's quite an important element as well. If you have some crops which, just you know, after a few days of warmth, just are really struggling and you put the spade in the ground and it looks really hard and slumped, you may want to consider putting a bit of nitrogen and phosphate in to feed it through the leaves because it probably means those roots aren't functioning as well. We know plants are very, very efficient at taking elements through, through their leaves, both through holes in the cuticle and also through the stomata, where they usually exchange water and gases, of course. Very efficient at doing that. They have a limited ability to take nutrients up in one hit, usually between five and eight kilos I usually use, so don't throw too much at it. And just think about what you're trying to do. You want the plant to take it up, so you want the plant to be growing actively. So don't go out and temp temperatures like this at the heat of the day. I'm afraid it's another early morning, late evening job. Uh, you might be mixing it, mixing them with a herbicide anyhow, which you can do and many products are compatible. But I think if you are concerned, and it's not a general recommendation to do everything, if you've got some crops which are still very slow, despite in some warm weather, and, and they look as though they're struggling in the ground, maybe a bit of NP alongside the manganese and magnesium. I'm only thinking about four or five kilos of each. Bear in mind the crop can't take up a lot more and that might be a little bit of a shot in the arm for it if you're worried about that. Let's, uh, let's talk about the, uh, the biostimulants. Uh, I suspect you, like me, your inbox, your phone, probably through the letterbox, you get lots of, uh, lots of adverts for products about claiming to help advance canopy growth and often you get more of those in, in difficult seasons, don't you? And so what I'm thinking here is biostimulants. So I'm not thinking about tr elements. I'm thinking biostimulants. So this include products such as uh, humic acids, amino acids. Uh, we have the cytokinin, the seaweed-based products, phosphites as opposed to phosphates. And I will make this point because there's a bit of confusion and the marketing is a little bit, how can I say, dubious. Phosphites don't act as phosphates. Uh, they're very different, different products, sound very similar, but actually phosphites don't do what phosphates do. They don't have that same metabolic interaction, or not to the extent, so don't let anybody say that's, that's going to do a great job, it's phosphites. But these kind of products, and you'll be familiar with some of them. Now, we've done, done a fair bit of work with these, replicated trials, a number of sites, and I, and I think you've heard us say this before, but it's probably appropriate to say it again at this venture, we see very inconsistent results with them. Sometimes we see them, they do promote a little bit of canopy greening. Sometimes they have a bit of nitrogen thrown in with them as well. Uh, but very rarely do we see those products be taken through to uh, a, a yield effect at the end. Now, I'm very prepared to keep an open mind because we've tested a range of different products. But every year there's new products coming forward and we continue to do and look at them. But to date, the BBRO jury says we just don't see any consistency. And if I was to make a say, I would say if you're going to spend some money on folate, I'd concentrate on your major and your minor elements rather than biostimulants. New boys on the block, things called bioinoculants. Again, Farmers Weekly opening up your talk about addition of plant promoting bacteria and rhizobacteria. A lot of products coming there. Quite a nice little bit of science behind them. Uh, and, you know, we've done a little bit of work with them. So these are basically adding microbes to the soil. 
Uh, we've done a little bit of work, but again, the BBRO jury is out. We have seen some effects, but we can't understand, we can't identify when you're likely to get effects. It seems to be a bit random. And I don't think we want to spend a lot of money on the sugar beet crop if we're not really knowing we're going to get a response on them. Uh, we're going to try one here, aren't we? I've, I've just given it to Steve. We've got a product a company work called Smart Rotations, which again is a, a plant promoting rhizobacteria and a biostimulant, which will get sprayed onto the soil and the plants at around two to four leaf stage, so probably next week sometimes, Steve, and we'll do some strip trials here to see uh, what, what we can see anything. And there are very similar products. Um, we have done a little bit of work with that, and some other sugar beet growers have worked with that particular product and have reported reasonable results. But let us, let us do that work and let, let us do that testing for you independently, and we'll share those results back with you. Watch these crops really carefully over the next couple of days and we've got some good growing weather now. I would expect them to move. I think you should expect your crops to move and probably put on another pair of leaves at least. Uh, if they don't, I think you need to go back and just have a do a bit more investigative work to see what's holding it back. First thing is get that spade in the ground, have a look and, and see what's going on. And then on the basis of that, decide I might need to give it a bit of extra shot in, our, shot in the arm nutrients as well as my magnesium and magnesium. I'm going to put some N and some uh, uh, P in as well. Uh, I think that's probably it. Just uh, have your kind of mid-herbicide programmes. I know we are here, yeah. Again, another reason for getting your manganese on early. You know if you have crops with manganese deficiency showing, they are, they, they are less tolerant to herbicide damage. It's written on pretty much local labels. So another good reason to make sure you get that on before you see deficiencies come. I can guarantee we will see manganese deficiency this year because the crop's going to grow really quickly. It's, very, it's not very mobile in the plant. It struggles to get enough and we do need to help it sometimes. So make sure you get that on early enough. OK, that's from me. I'm now going to pass you on to George. You're going to talk a bit about some of the, the new work we're doing as well. Yes, we thought we'd round off today with a bit of uh, future work, sort of the work that BBRO are kicking off this year, um, particularly on the sort of soil side of things. Um, I'm sure most of you are aware it's in the news all the time. People are always discussing carbon and net zero. So within the industry, there's a lot of work going on, particularly for British Sugar and the manufacturing side of things. Like most companies, they're under a lot of pressure to understand where their emissions come from and how they reduce those emissions. It's complicated enough for them, and while it's not as complicated as what we have to do, they can sort of work out the energy that goes into a factory. It's quite a controlled environment. It's very clear what goes in, what comes out balance. It's a hell of a lot harder when you're in the great outdoors. You've got weather, you've got soil type, you've got all sorts of different things interacting that really change the carbon dynamics going on uh, on a field scale. Another opportunity to flag as well, I think carbon data is very manipulated. It's very hard often to find the source of data with regards to carbon emissions. And I think people can sometimes pick and choose the data to fit their agenda. So there's a real need for us as an industry to be producing reliable, robust and transparent data that's available particularly to growers. Um, so that if you're challenged or you're discussing anything regarding carbon, that you feel well informed. Additionally, it's important to generate this data to help shape policy. In the next 10, 15 years, a lot of policy, unfortunately, is not going to be quite as focused on food production. We're going to have more of a sway towards environmental impact, uh, and that involves greenhouse gases and carbon as well. So if we empower ourselves as an industry to generate data, we're then better placed to challenge or agree and shape policy going forwards. That's all well and good. That's the spiel. How do we actually do it? So we've got these two flux tower systems. So the Morley Agricultural Foundation are working with us. They funded two flux towers. A lot of the sensors on a flux tower are weather station related sensors. We've got our humidity, we've got our temperature, we've got our light, we've got all the classic measurements. However, we've also got this bit of kit on here as well. So this is an infrared gas analyzer. It sucks in air through this aperture 
and then it measures the CO2 in that air. And the two bits here that look like two claws up and down, they measure wind from all directions, so 360 degrees. And what the really clever people at the Centre of Ecology and Hydrology do, who we work with, is they use all this data and they can map out over a field where those CO2 emissions have come from. Converse as well, when the crop grows, we're obviously uptaking CO2. So over the season, you actually end up with a graph showing the emissions of carbon dioxide from the soil and then the carbon uptaken by the crop. What's really important to remember is the carbon uptaken by the crop, not all of it is truly sequestered. Most of it within the next 18 months is lost through various avenues, whether that's the tops being left on the soil and breaking down, whether that's as it goes through the factory, or finally, even when you're eating your sugar or have sugar in your cup of tea, when you then respire out CO2, it's quite funny to think that that's CO2 that's been captured by the plant has eventually made its way back into the atmosphere. So it's understanding that cycle, and fundamentally it's getting baseline measurements, but what's really novel with the work that we're doing is that we have two flux towers in neighbouring fields. So what we're really interested in is understanding how different management practices are affecting carbon emissions in farming. So we've started off with cover crop in one field and then the other field stubble, which has then been ploughed. Um, obviously, that's quite a classic comparison. You've got a, a plant that's photosynthesizing, uptaking carbon. Uh, and then every time you touch soil and you introduce oxygen or water, you activate the microbes in there, they respire and you lose CO2. However, again, it's complicated when you destroy the cover crop. There's obviously a CO2 cost of, um, associated with that as well. So it's really understanding some of these really complex systems. What's really important as well is not just looking at the emissions from the soil. It's also understanding fuel burn um, and product input as well. So uh, your fuel input and um, your crop protection products and tillage practices are your main sort of areas of carbon uh, cost in your arable system. What's really good news is they're also the area where you have most cost. So particularly with fuel, if you're reducing fuel um, burn, you're significantly reducing your carbon emissions and you're also saving some money if you can then still establish a good crop. So it's getting a balance there. Work we're also doing is we have this yellow box called a gas met. Fundamentally, what's inside is very similar to what's in the flux tower. However, it can also do nitrous oxide and methane. Nitrous oxide is 298 times more potent than CO2, so it's a real area for us to focus on. Uh, so in the following seasons, we're really interested to start looking at different fertiliser application methods, so the difference between placement and broadcast, but also all the different inhibited fertilisers, these amazing new fertilisers that have promise all these different benefits to the system, understanding not only their greenhouse gas emissions, but also how they perform in the crop. So that's some work we're looking at doing going forward once we've sort of sorted our protocol and our understanding um, within the flux tower system and using this bit of equipment. Limitation of this bit of equipment is it's small. We, we, take, we put a ducting uh, metal collar in the ground and then we cap that off and we measure the gas emissions from that system. That gives us a value. The great thing with the flux tower is it's capturing the whole field. So it's having the balance of the two together. Um, but this is a longer term project. Obviously, we want this as a scientist. You always sort of want you have hindsight. We should have been doing this 10 years ago, but it's better to start at some point. And we, this is a project that's funded for seven years, but I can see it going on for much longer, just generating more and more data to give us uh, a better understanding of what's going on um, within the industry. In a shorter term, uh, one of the things we're really focusing on within sort of thinking of carbon is tillage, not just because of the greenhouse gas um, spin, but also because SFI is potentially moving towards rewarding growers for reducing tillage depth, potentially all the way down to uh, going as shallow as five centimetres, which obviously is a massive challenge for us in the sugar beet crop. So we've partnered with Holcomb Estates uh, and they are doing a tillage trial for us. We've got a very large field 
uh, and we've got 18 meter tram lines um, with seven different tillage treatments. So we've got a plow and press, um, an all-rounder at three different depths. That's their sort of standard. They use an all-rounder to about 10, 15 centimetres. Uh, then we've got a coltus, which has gone down to um, 20, 25 centimetres. And then finally, we've literally got some discs where we've just, stick, um, we've just tickled the stubble to see if we can get a good enough seed bed. As well as doing all the carbon measurements and all that side of stuff, we're also interested in obviously how the crop performs uh, and fundamentally getting to the end and not only doing a carbon balance, so understanding the amount of crop producing, the amount of carbon emitted for each tillage treatment, but also looking monetarily as well, whether, you know, if you may lose some yield reducing your tillage and not ploughing, but is that traded off um, in the long term when we actually look at yield in relation to cost? So finally, to wrap up, um, yes, we're interested in sugar beet, but also we're really interested in the impact sugar beet has on the subsequent crop. It would be naive of us to focus on soil health and not think that, you know, the subsequent cereal crop that goes in is probably one of your focal points of the rotation. Um, how is the work that we're doing with tillage affecting this? So we're also working with Holcomb. They're going to till perpendicular to this when they put their cereal crop in um, at the end of the year or into next year. Um, and then we're going to assess whether there's any legacy effects from the tillage practices. So they'll yield map this with their combine when they harvest. Be interesting to see if we can see any differences there as well. So really, as me and Simon always say, soil health is a rotational thing. It shouldn't be looked at in any one individual point. Uh, and then the work we're doing going forward, we will try and encompass that thought process as much as possible. So that's a bit of a summary of where we're at. And hopefully in 18 months or so, we'll have some preliminary data and I'll be stood here with some nice graphs to show everyone. We will, of course, catch up with George as her project progresses. And indeed, we will be returning to the four demo farm sites in the second week of July. So please do watch the BBR website and Advisory Bulletin for more details of those. You can also find BBRO at Serials on the 13th of June, at the Morley Innovation Day on the 22nd of June, and at the Royal Norfolk Show in the Innovation Hub. So if you're attending any of those, then please do make sure you pop by and say hello. At the May events, we also did talk a little bit about herbicides and we have produced a video which is available via the news section on our BBI website. So please do take a look at that. And of course, we have our basis points. So one point available for this podcast, and that is CP forward slash 128652 forward slash 2324 forward slash K. I hope you've enjoyed the June edition and thank you for listening.